U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and over there is the stalwart XO, Stephen. Hey, everybody. How you doing? So, we have some news. The Department of the Navy has decided that they do not like our artwork. Well, the the U.S. Navy has decided they don't like our podcast logo. So, in the tradition of all government entities, we have decided that we are going to redact the U.S. in the U.S. Navy history podcast logo. Now, folks, this is eyes only, so... If you have to peel back that redacted sticker, for the love of God, do not say what's behind the redacted sticker. Otherwise, Tom Cruise will strafe your home. Right, yeah. We we don't need drone strikes on us, so that is why we are redacting the U.S. part of the logo. We're not redacting the entire country. Just to get that straight. <laughs> now, Uncle Sam, we hope that you find this uh, gesture of goodwill, you know... In good faith, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can play nice. Yes, because we want to keep talking about U.S. Navy history, so please, work with us. <laughs> we know your track record, just please work with us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> so we're going to continue with the Civil War. We have gotten through the causes. That was very heavy. That was very hard. And now we're going to go into the successions and the beginning of the war. All right. Let's cast off. Let's get underway. So, which state, my dear Stephen, do you think did more to advance the succession of all the other states? Hmm. I feel like I should know this answer. I'm going to go with Virginia. No. Oh. It is actually South Carolina. They adopted the, quote, declaration of the eminent causes which induce and justify the succession of South Carolina from the Federal Union, unquote. Wow, that is a title even longer than most thesis papers. Yes, at least they didn't have any hyphenations in that, because that would have made it even longer. L listen, um, a long title does not count towards the word count requirement for a secession paper. Try harder. Yeah. So, this was done on December 24th, 1860. What this paper did was it argued for the state's rights for slave owners in the South, and it contained a compliment about states' rights in the North in the form of going against the Fugitive Slave Act. They claimed that the Northern states were not fulfilling their federal obligations under the Constitution. Well, if a law is unjust, must it be followed? I see what you did there. Musket. <laughs> So, seven states declared their succession from the Union even before Lincoln took office. They established the Southern Government, which was the Confederate States of America, on February 4th of 1861. Then they took control of federal forts and other properties within their boundaries with very, very little resistance from James Buchanan, who was the outgoing president. Buchanan's like, I'm out the door. You think I care? I ain't dealing with this crap. I, I was going to say, there's a reason why he's often considered the worst president in U.S. history. And how he handled this whole thing before Lincoln even took office is definitely one of those factors. Yeah, he's like, I'm out of here in a month. I don't care. I gotta pack up the White House. <laughs> Buchanan did say that the Dred Scott decision was proof that the South did not have a leg to stand on for succession and that the Union was intended to be perpetual. 
but that the power of a force of arms to compel the state to stay in the union, this was not among the powers granted to Congress. Well, I imagine it's one of those things that when writing uh, the Constitution in 1788, it's just one of those things that you're optimistic. Hey, we made a new nation. Articles of Confederation didn't work, so let's uh, do this again, do this right. Uh, well, what if states rebel? <laughs> We're all working together. That won't happen. Yeah. Guess what? It's happening. Dang it. So, a quarter of the entire U.S. Army, every single garrison in Texas, surrendered February of 1861 to the states that succeeded. And then they said, we're part of the Confederacy now, under David E. Twiggs. So, after that, the Southerners, they started resigning their seats in the Senate and the House, and Republicans were then able to pass bills for projects that had been blocked by these Southern senators before the war started, <laughs> which I know, which include the Morrell Tariff, the Land Grant Colleges, the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railway Acts, the National Banking Act, and the Authorization of the United States Notes by the Legal Tender Act of 1862. So these guys were standing in the way of the dollar bill. What do you mean they were standing in the way of the dollar bill? Like they were intentionally strangling the economy to try and prop up the South? You would have to go to the United States Political History Podcast to figure that one out. All right, let me start rummaging through my uh, Rolodex, <laughs> and I think I got their contact information here somewhere. Right. All, all I know is that the all these acts were being blocked by the Confederate, what we'll now call the Confederate states, because that's what they are. And so once they went away, they were able to pass all this stuff that they wanted to pass. Amazing, isn't it? Well, in a two-party system, if one party just ups and leaves because they're throwing a temper tantrum, suddenly, well, uh, one party gets to push the agenda they've been trying to push. Yeah. All right, so let's get into the Confederate states. These are South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. And Jefferson Davis was put in as president. And a governmental structure closely modeled on the U.S. Constitution was also put in place. Hey, U.S., can I copy your homework even though I'm leaving? Okay, uh, I, I guess. Just don't make it too obvious. Well, I mean, this is the government that they had always been used to anyway, so it makes sense that they would copy it. They just didn't like not getting their own way, so they threw a temper tantrum and started a war. So once the attack on Fort Sumter happens, President Lincoln, he calls for a volunteer army from all of his states. And within two months, this makes four more states declare succession and join the Confederacy, which were Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Now, not everybody in Virginia were like, yay, we're Confederate now. The northwestern portion of Virginia were like, you succeeded from the Union? Well, we're succeeding from you. <laughs> but you can't do that. You're part of the states. Well, now we're part of the Union. And this is how West Virginia was formed. Good on you guys. Yes. And from what I understand, Missouri was kind of in an opposite situation. Like, while it was technically a Union state, there was a good chunk of the southern portion of the state that was trying really hard to make it switch sides. By the end of 1861, both Missouri and Kentucky were pretty much under Union control. And the Confederate governments that they tried to put in place there were exiled. So, yes, they wanted to be part of the Confederacy, 
But the union was like, nope. You guys, out. Fine. Sorry, guys. Mom says I can't play. I'm heading back to the south. Yeah. Now, the... All these states, you know, they did their paperwork to succeed and, you know, gave their reasons. And only three, Texas, Alabama, and Virginia, they're the ones that specifically mention the plight of the slaveholding states at the hands of the North. The rest of them don't mention the slavery issue, but, you know, that's why. So, the other 23 states, uh, they are the Union, which were in alphabetical order. California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Ohio, Oregon, because Ohio comes before Oregon in alphabetical order. Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Wisconsin. I love That's Wisconsin! <laughs> now, while the war was going, Nevada and West Virginia, they split off and joined the Union. And Tennessee and Louisiana were returned to the Union military control during the war. Now, the territories of Colorado, Dakota, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Washington all fought on the Union side as well. Now, there were a bunch of Native American tribes that supported the Confederacy. And do you know why they supported the Confederacy? Well, let's see. The federal U.S. government had done such a bang-up job of uh, following treaties that they had made with the Native populations. And by bang-up job, I mean tearing the treaty to shreds and saying, like, I'm sorry, eminent domain, move, again, or else. And the Confederates were probably saying, like, listen, screw those guys. We'll actually follow our word. Nope. No? No, because these were slave-holding tribes. Oh. And that's what brings Oklahoma onto the Confederate side. Because this Oklahoma is pretty much where they shipped all the Indians. As, you know, they were ripping them out of their native homes because they wanted that land. Which we've already gone over. Quite a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. I think we spent like three episodes on just one state. Florida. Eh, Florida. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you got some swamp water stuck in your uh, throat there. <laughs> So the border states in the Union were West Virginia, which because they separated from Virginia and said, nope. And then also Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky. Now, Maryland, they had a number of pro-Confederate officials who pretty okay with the anti-Union writing in Baltimore and the burning of the bridges. Now, Lincoln, he's like, um, they're starting to burn our bridges and they're writing. No, we need martial law. And so he sends in militias from the north. And before the Confederacy realized what was happening, Lincoln, he had taken Maryland and D.C. And he arrested all of the prominent Confederate officials and held them without trial. But, well, I mean, that's actually pretty normal for war. I was going to say, like, martial law is a slippery slope, but during wartime, that's especially in the 1800s, that's par for the course. Well, this is still pre-war. Oh, we're still pre-war. Yes, we're, we're still pre-war. This is the fi shots fired before the shots were fired. <laughs> uh, in Missouri... There was a convention of elected officials, and they voted to remain in the Union. And this ticked off the pro-Confederate governor, Claiborne F. Jackson, who he called out the state militia. 
This militia was then attacked by federal forces under a guy named General Nathan Lyon, who chased the governor and his state militia to the southwestern corner of the state. So what I'm hearing, as far as a pattern goes, a lot of border states especially were like, it had a faction in their government that was like, you know, these these Confederates, like, they, they don't seem so bad. What do, you, what do you guys say we hold a vote? See if we want to throw our lot in with them. Vote doesn't go their way. And just like how the Confederate states got this started, well, you know what? I'm just going to call the local boys with the guns, and we're going to do it anyways. Oh, crap, here comes the army. So far, so the resulting vacuum in power and, you know, all of the Confederacy down the uh, southwestern corner of the state this allowed the Unionists to take power. And that is how Missouri handled that. Now, Kentucky, they declared itself neutral until Confederate forces entered the state in September of 1861. And when they did this, Kentucky was like, oh, no, you didn't. We're Union now. Yeah, I was going to say, generally a good way to force a neutral party's hand is just to encroach, it, it, have your army violate their border, and it's like, ah, oh, well, they're probably saying neutrality because they just don't want to get involved, but you just force them to get involved. Yeah, and they did affirm their union status, and they were like, but we still want to keep slavery. But you see how that worked out? Yeah. Now, during this brief invasion, the Confederate sympathizers were like, oh, our troops are here. Let's organize a succession convention. <laughs> Let's bring in our own governor. Hey, you, you're now governor. And we're going to try to say, okay, we're actually Confederacy. We're not Union. Sorry about the confusion. And yeah, they got exiled. <laughs> <laughs> to where? <laughs> to the Confederacy. They probably got booted south. They were like, you're not, Ken you're no Kentuckian. Get out. <laughs> That's right. I bleed gray, not blue. So Virginia did succeed, but a unionist government in Wheeling, Virginia, they asked 48 counties to vote on a ordinance to create a new state. This happened October 24th, 1861. And you want to know what the voter turnout was? I have a percentage of, for that. Uh, either very high or very low, and I'm going to guess very high. 95. Wrong. Two? Wrong. Do I get a hot or cold? <laughs> <laughs> You're closer from 2% than you were 95%. I'll give you one more guess. All right, 25 uh, it's even closer, but it was 34% voted on this issue. 96% voted yay. On staying in the Union. On creating a new state. This is what formed West Virginia, as I mentioned earlier. Now, this did cause a pretty heavy guerrilla war in this area. And it was pretty much a guerrilla war for the entire war, the size of the guerrilla force was about 40,000 Union soldiers. Against pretty much any southern-leaning local. Or did the Confederacy, you know, commit troops to this as well? Well, you know, the way armies fought back then was they just walked around until they stumbled into each other. <laughs> so if they stumbled into their territory, the guerrillas went after them. Okay. So Congress did admit West Virginia into the Union in 1863, and that's when they officially became a state in the Union. Now, a succession attempt from the Union in East Tennessee was attempted, but this time the opposite happened, and the Confederacy went in there, arrested about 3,000 men who were 
identified as Union loyalists and were imprisoned without trial, of course. Of course. So that is all pre-war. That is all leading up to the actual Let's Rumble War. Oh, Fort, Fort Sumter hasn't even been fired upon yet. Okay. <laughs> so that's going to bring us back to December of 61. The secessionists with and without, you know, state forces, they started seizing federal courthouses, U.S. Treasury mints and post offices. And the southern governments ordered their militias to mobilize and seized most of the federal forts and cannons within, you know, their state boundaries and also armories and weapon depots. So pretty much if it's federal land or federally owned buildings or federally owned property in the southern states, they're like, mm, mine. Yep. Now, governors in the states of Massachusetts, New York's, and Pennsylvania, they started quietly buying weapons and training militias themselves. The, the, the governors were like, you know what? We're going to need more than just U.S. Army troops, so let's go ahead and, 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 and start getting more guys together. Now, of course, Buchanan, he protests all the southern states seizing all this federal property but he's also like guys just no please don't don't let's all just you know what I'm out of here whatever no wait stop this makes me look bad in my last month pretty okay you know what not my problem yeah he tried once and that was at Fort Sumter he made no responses, except he did try to resupply Fort Sumter using a boat called the Star of the West. And this boat was fired upon by the South Carolina forces, and it turned it around. Oh, that sounds almost like piracy. No. Well, yeah, as soon as I said it, we can scrub that. <laughs> Why? I like keeping your embarrassing shit in. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what have I said? What have I done? <laughs> so, Lincoln, he raises his right hand and is sworn in on March 4th, 1861. And in his inaugural address, he argues that the Constitution was a more perfect union than the earlier one that was pretty much just a binding contract. And he calls that any succession was legally void. He also says that he has no intent to invade the southern states. But he was ending slavery where it existed. And that he would use force to maintain possession of federal property. The government would make no move to recover post offices and if resisted. Mail delivery would end at state lines. Now, where the conditions existed that did not allow peaceful enforcement of federal law, the U.S. Marshals and judges would just be withdrawn, taken where they would be safe. And he did not make any mention of, well, you know what was in Louisiana, Georgia, North Carolina? Swamp. U.S. Mints. Those are important. Yeah, you know what was in there, right? Uh, a lot of... When I say raw, I mean still an ingot. Uh, probably a lot of gold and silver. A lot of bullion, yes. He also said that U.S. policy would be to only collect import duties from... At the ports themselves. There would be no serious injury to justify revolution in the politics in his four years he ended his speech with a plea to restore the bonds of the union in response to this the south they sent delegations to washington and they offered to pay for the federal properties and enter into a peace treaty with the united states because now they're the confederacy the Confederate States of America. 
and Lincoln, he rejects any negotiations with the Confederacy because he claimed that they were not a legal government. The Secretary of State, William Seward, he saw himself as the governor or prime minister behind the throne of the, quote, inexperienced Lincoln. And he engaged in the negotiations with the Confederacy. This was unauthorized and highly illegal. And I believe that would be a call of... Treason? I'm hearing treason. Treason, yes. Treason. And these negotiations fail. Lincoln was determined to keep a hold of all remaining Union-occupied forts in the Confederacy. He was like, our men are there. Those are ours. Back off. These included Fort Monroe in Virginia, Fort Pickens in Florida, Fort Jefferson and Fort Taylor in Charleston, South Carolina, Fort Sumner. So that brings us to Fort Sumner. I, I know you've been waiting for this because you keep saying Fort Sumner, Fort Sumner, Fort Sumner. So here we go. You ready for this? Let's do it. Nope. Next week, we're going to be... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> next time on U.S. Navy History Podcast, will Abraham Lincoln be able to preserve the Union? Will the South fire the first shot? We all know the answers to these questions already because we paid attention in history class. But find out next week on U.S. Navy History Podcast. You know what? Let's just get into it now. You know what? That's the last time I use my anime announcer voice for you. That's it. I'm done. Oh, that's fine, because guess what? I have a recording of it now. I can use it anytime I want. Curses! <laughs> so, Fort Sumner is in the middle of the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. This is where the U.S. has withdrawn its garrison to avoid incidents with the Confederate militia in the streets of the city. Now, Buchanan, he allowed commanders to just surrender to avoid bloodshed. But Lincoln, he said, Major Anderson, hold the fort until fired upon. Don't give it away. So Jefferson Davis, he orders the surrender of the fort, and Anderson, he gave a conditional reply, saying, I will surrender under these conditions. And the Confederacy, they were like, no, unconditional, give us the fort. What were the conditions? It doesn't say here. I'm sure it says elsewhere, but this isn't the U.S. Army History Podcast. <laughs> A lot of spinoff podcasts we have the opportunities to make now. Yes. So, Davis, he orders the attack on the fort before reinforcements could arrive. So, this guy named PGT... Beauregard, he is the one put in charge of the attack. He bombards Fort Sumner between the 12th and 13th of April, which forces its surrender. But, I mean, they also were told, once you're fired upon, surrender. And then on April 15th, you know, Lincoln's Secretary of War, he calls on the governors of all their Union states he, he wanted 75,000 volunteers and he wanted to have them recapture the fort and a lot of other federal property. I was going to say, at, at this point, yeah, no, it isn't just a region saying, and another thing, we're going to do it ourselves, and another thing, we're going to have our own leaders, you know, and just kind of taking federal property um without so much as a, you know, sternly worded letter condemning the actions because the administration heading out was like, eh, not our problem. But now they fired shots. Yeah, up until then, it had been like a, uh, a protest. Yes. But now they wheeled cannons around, lit the fuse and said, boom. Now the Northerners, they rally behind Lincoln's call for troops. They were like, yes, we need to recapture the forts. We need to preserve this union. And so he 
brings up the Militia Acts of 1792, which gives the president the power to do this. Now, Lincoln's under the impression that the rebellion is very, very small. So he only calls for 70,000 volunteers and only asks to have them for 90 days. So the next day, the governors, they start moving their forces. And the Union, they seize the Liberty Arsenal in Liberty, Missouri. So two weeks after asking for 70,000, Lincoln says, you know what? I need 43,000 more. And this time, I want them for three years. And I imagine this is the first time in American history that a, a force of that size, let alone a force being under contract for that length of time, would have been raised. Yeah. Now, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, North Carolina, they are on the part of the, on the side of the Union up until this point. They were like, we're not sending forces against our neighbors. You know what? Screw the Union. We're out. Hey, Confederacy. Hug. And to reward Virginia, the Confederate capital was moved to Richmond. That brings us to the actual war. All up until now has been set dressing. So, you know, as you can imagine, the Civil War, because of the fact that it is the country fighting the country, unlike a normal war, there are a lot more battles. And they happen a lot more often. Over four years, 237 named battles were fought. And that doesn't even count all of the minor skirmishes. Well, I was going to say, this is almost akin to uh, a war in Europe at the time where, you know, both parties involved can draw troops and send them to the front because the front's a scant hundred miles away from the capital. If that. Uh, not necessarily, because the wars in Europe were also carried out over long distances. Because, I mean, look at the Roman Empire. They had to do expand, 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 and just send their troops further and further and further and further. Oh, I'm, I'm talking like uh, Napoleon's fights against the uh, alliances that were always called up against him. Like, up until he went into Russia, like, he never got, you know, more than a couple hundred miles away from France. That might be true, but all the other forces were having to come to him, right? Well, look, we'll, we'll just go with the European military pot history podcast <laughs> and ask them. All right, as long as we do the British <laughs> Naval Court Martial podcast first. The spinoff that'll start it all. Okay. Uh, anyway. In the scales of world military history, both sides of the fighting, both the Union and Confederacy, they were characterized by high casualties and ferocious intensity. This was to prove to be one of the most vicious wars ever fought. There were no real geographic objectives. The target was the soldiers themselves. It wasn't, hey, we got to go take the city. We have to go kill all of them. So the U.S. Army at this time, they numbered about 16,000. That was the standing force prior to the 75K being called? Yes. The standing force of the United States Army was 16,000 men. The northern governors, they start to mobilize militias. And the Confederate Congress authorized their new nation to mobilize 100,000 troops. So, as, as we said before, after Fort Sumner, Lincoln called for his 75,000 for three months. While, you know, Jefferson Davis, he was like, no, we're going to have 100,000 for a year or the duration. Always got to keep an eye out for those ors in your contract. Right, which is why the U.S. was like, well, we need 45000 more for three years. So because of all this, in the first year of the war, 
both sides, the Union and the Confederacy, had so many men they didn't know what to do with. They were trying to train them <laughs> and equip them. And they were like, what? What did we do? Uh, yeah, up to this point, <laughs> yeah, you had, you know, across the entire country, the equivalent of a small town, you know, as your standing army. That's not too hard for logistical support. You know, even if they're going all the way to Mexico, hypothetically. Yeah. And for organization, you know, let's just make this nice and round. 16K, let's split that up into four cores, and from those four cores, you know, divvy it up as you want. But it, it can, each core could probably operate autonomously. You're now multiplying its size by five. And you can't just train that many men overnight, let alone get logistical support for them. Yeah. So this was their first difficulty. Their second difficulty is the enthusiasm that the local populace felt faded. So their reliance on young men coming of age every year and coming to voluntarily join the fight started not to be enough. So both sides started a draft. This was to encourage or force them into volunteering, quote, unquote. Wait, you mean to tell me the draft's optional? Yeah, you have a choice. Join or go to jail. Hmm. Or, and hear me out, I am medically unable to serve. Jeez. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I just flashed back to a video of Russians breaking their legs. Oh, see, I, I was just... Talking about how, like, uh, the singer Meatloaf put on all that weight when his draft card came up. <sighs> oh, that got depressing. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Fine. <laughs> but, you know, even though there was the draft, there was not very many who were actually drafted and served. The Confederacy, they brought their law into effect in April of 1862 for men between 18 and 35 but the overseers of the slaves government officials and the clergy were exempt and the u.s made their draft law in july it this authorized a state that could not meet its quota to draft men now european immigrants they join the Union Army in large numbers. For example, there were 177,000 Germans and 144,000 Irish. Well, three hots, a cot, you definitely have work, and I imagine citizenship would be pretty much guaranteed after you serve, considering you're literally fighting for, your, for the country. One would hope, but even now... Men who served in the modern military going that route to become a citizen are not always given their citizenship, which really sucks. Well, now you made it depressing for me. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we've got revenge on each other, shake. Yes, we will no longer cause each other crippling depression, at least for this episode. Okay. So the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect January of 1863. And this made the new free African-Americans energetically volunteer for the U.S. Army. And this allowed the U.S. Army to meet its quota for enlistment. And, of course, the state and local communities, they offered higher and higher bonuses for, well, only for the white men, but they were trying to keep them in with money. Well, it can be a very persuasive tool. Yeah. So Congress changes the law a little bit in March, and this allowed men who were selected in the draft to provide substitutes or until 
about halfway through 64, they allowed them to pay them off. Say, hey, here's some money. I'm staying here. Buy yourself something nice. A 12-pounder. Yes. A lot of people would actually pool their money to cover the cost of anyone who was drafted. I mean, I'm not sure if war bonds were a thing for the Civil War, but I can kind of see where they're going with that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of families use the substitute provision to select which men in the community should go and which should stay home. Yes, please don't send Paul to the war. Send Jerry instead. He keeps looking at my sheep awfully interestingly, and I don't want him near them. Yeah, don't be the town jerk in this situation. There was a lot of people who tried to evade and straight up resist the draft, especially in the Catholic areas. There was a riot in New York City in July over the draft. This involved Irish immigrants who had been signed up as citizens so they could use them to vote. This also made them eligible for the draft. And they were like, wait, what? There were in total around 168,649 men on the Union side drafted. 117,986 were substitutes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to say to that. That, that is... <laughs> I thought it was going to be something like, you know, 10, maybe 20%. No. No. Most of the drafted U.S. Army <laughs> for this war were uh, the people who were voted off the island. Yes. So they estimate about 120,000 men. They fled conscription. They were like, no, we're going to Canada. And they estimate about 280,000 Union soldiers just deserted during the war. And that the Confederacy had about 100,000 desert them. Which, you know, it's about 10%. Yeah, I mean, this is the 1860s. You know, surveillance isn't what it is nowadays. So get a haircut, go by a different name, head a few counties over. It's a whole new you. And, and, you know, desertion is actually very common in this day of age. In peacetime, they estimate that 15% desert every year. So, I mean... Nowadays? No, back then. Oh, okay. Okay, I was going to say, holy crap. Yeah, that, yeah, no, during this time. Okay, not now. okay. So, in the South... Uh, a lot of these guys, they deserted to take care of their families for a little bit. And then they just go back to their units. They're like, they'd be like, okay, I got to go, you know, make another baby. I'll be back. Okay. So effectively going a wall and then showing back up a month or two later. Yep. So in the North, there are guys called bounty jumpers. They would enlist and collect their huge bonuses, then they would desert and they would come back to a different recruiting station under a different name and sign up and get paid again. You want to know how many of these that we caught? 3,000. 141. That's it? That's it. Do you want to know what their punishment was? Uh, 10 years hard labor. A blindfold, a cigarette, and a shot. Yeah, you know, I get it. <laughs> I mean, you're you're pretty much taking money from the U.S. Treasury that's needed for the war, and you are hampering the unit or units you have said you will help. And besides, desertion at this time was punishable by death anyway. Yeah, yeah. So triple desertion... Or quadruple desertion. Doesn't get you the extra cigarette. Not even an extra blindfold. Yeah. So as you can imagine, by 1865, the soldiers of both the Union and the Confederacy, well, they 
say that this is now the largest and most efficient armies in the entire world. The Europeans who were observing this, they were like, no, these guys are amateurs and they're unprofessional. But our modern military historians, they say that both of these armies were more than a match and actually outmatched the French, the Prussian, and the Russian armies of that time. And if the Atlantic didn't exist, they could have just marched right over there and they would have obliterated any of those countries. Oh, I, I would pay good money and probably fall asleep halfway through the conversation of these military historians getting into a historical fight club debate about, <laughs> the Union Army would totally stomp the Tsar's armies. Well, I think the French would have come out on top. <laughs> We're forgetting about the Redcoats. Yeah, that would be interesting. Oh, but again, we'd probably fall asleep halfway through. Maybe. We, we might have to try that out. Hey, that, you know what? We might get better quality sleep at night. Ooh, that is an excellent idea. We're looking into that. <laughs> All right, the last thing we're going to cover for this week is, you know, the motivation of these guys. Because the Civil War was very, very bloody. It was very, very ferocious. But also very, very personal for almost every individual soldier. Right. So there is a quote I'm going to read. This is from Perman and Taylor in 2010. Quote, Some historians emphasize that Civil War soldiers were driven by political ideology, holding firm beliefs about the importance of liberty, union, or state rights, or about the need to protect or destroy slavery. Others point to less overtly political reasons to fight, such as the defense of one's home and family, or the honor and brotherhood to be preserved when fighting alongside other men. Most historians agree that, no matter what a soldier thought about when he went into the war, the experience of combat affected him profoundly and sometimes altered his reasons for continuing the fight. So, that is that. When we come back, we're going to talk about the naval aspect of the war. We're going to go into, you know, blockades, blockade runners, the economic impact, the rivers. Ironclads, ironclads, ironclads. That'll be more when we get into the battles. We're still going to be just doing the overview. And yeah, one we might have one entire episode just on ironclads because Yay! of the revolutionary effect these got these things had on naval warfare. I believe this is the first time submersibles were used as well. Mm, no. We used uh subs in the Revolutionary War. Won't say they were good subs. I don't remember that, but uh We'll have to jump back and cover the Revolutionary War again anyway. That that also is currently redacted. Yeah, that those something happened to those files and we're just gonna have to redo it. But uh after that we're gonna just go into the different theaters. And then we'll get to the end of the war with all the stats for that, the results and everything like that, the reconstruction. And then, what, about three episodes from the, from now, we're going to get into the naval battles. And yes, I promise, Stephen, we will have one episode dedicated to just ironclads. Yes! So, any, any, anything you want to say or do or cover or whatever, I open the deck to you before we sign off well folks we would love to hear from you you know we have a couple of reviews we have a couple ratings but the more the merrier so if you want us to read your review please feel free to write one on apple podcast 
You can reach out to us on Twitter at USN History Pod. You can also email at us at no at. Emails don't have ats at the beginning. <laughs> Not at the beginning. Not the beginning. US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Yes. We would love to hear from you. The ship store is still open. The podcast logo will be changed to the redacted podcast logo, as well as the show art. And that's another way you want you can support us if you want. There's also some artwork by the captain. There's even a USS Peacock that was put that was a special request from the XO. And you're more than welcome to make a special request as well. And we wish you guys fair winds and following seas. Don't sink the boat. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 